Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, great show lined up. Great show. It, by the way, any sort of technical difficulties that we run into with this podcast. They're all Connor's fault. 100% my fault. <laughs> if we have any sort of hiccups whatsoever, it's because I am doing this on a brand new computer wherein everything that I've had to figure out over the course of the last like four hours today has just been a minefield because when you get, you know, a computer for the first time in eight years. That's just what you go through. But nobody cares about that. Great show lined up. Ari Washman's going to join us in a little bit. We're going to talk some Dylan Riola. Yeah, Riola. We go through the pronunciation thing and how I definitely messed that up last week. But upon further review, we did actually get the right pronunciation. So we're going to talk a lot about him. And we've got paternity slash maternity leave in figuring it out plus lat of the week. But first, well, I wanted to do something today that will kind of show that I still have all these takes rattling around in my brain. I'm calling this in case I forget. Okay. We're going to provide a little bit more context on this later, a little bit of housekeeping to come, but this is the last episode that we'll be recording before paternity leave. We will still have Monday episodes that come out. So that's the good news for you person at home is that nothing's going to really change in that way. And that's awesome. But we've, Got all these episodes that will that we've that we've banked. Will and I have been working overtime to be able to get this done, but we won't be reacting to any sort of breaking news. So anything that comes out in the next few weeks, that's like, whoa, this is big news in the SEC. Why aren't you guys reacting to it? That's why my wife, Lauren, do Sunday, May 28th. I'm gonna take the under. I'm going to take the under and say that in a very short matter of time, uh, we will be going to the hospital. So it, basically what that means is my perspective is about to change. That's what everybody always says. The first child is born, perspective changes, the shift that people go through, it is unlike anything else. So I thought I would just empty the tank with all of my takes that maybe I've, maybe I've like very, very briefly hit on at some point in this offseason, but never really gotten to dig into. But I have a lot of things that I haven't talked about on these airwaves that I feel like we should just get out there today. Who knows? Maybe I'm going to come back off of paternity leave and I'm not going to want to criticize anything because I'm like just this big softy now. And I can't break down why the Jimbo Fisher offense blows chunks. And who knows? I, I don't know what I'm going to be like on the other side. This is all new to me. I have no idea what to expect. So I felt like this. No, you're going to be in the delivery room with the Iowa notebook, just jotting stuff down. There's no days off. You're going to come back with like 10 columns in your head, just ready to go. <laughs> I have like six of those that were just sitting on my desk that I had to move inside my desk because those have been just taking up too much space. I still have so many Iowa notebooks left. It's it's actually disgusting. But yeah, they'll be put to good use probably in the next few weeks. I'm going to put together entire pod segments during this time when, you know, baby's taking a nap or something like that. And I'm just scribbling ideas because that's, that's the entire point of paternity leave, right? No, I'm just kidding. It's not. So the, the goal today is to kind of do a catch-all. We have all the all bang the drum team is coming out in a couple of weeks. So if I avoid talking about guys like squirrel white or Dylan Wade, that's kind of why in case I forget is my brain dump. It's just things I thought about a lot throughout this off season, but I don't know if my perspective is going to change. I don't know if my brain is just going to run out of room for these takes because maybe I'll be mastering the toys that one can use during tummy time. I don't know. I have no idea. This is all new to me. Tummy time. Tummy time's a thing. We got tummy time llama ready to go. You got to have an hour of tummy time. It's a big thing. 
Yes. Got to make sure that, that the newborns are getting their tummy time. They're getting all that interaction. It's really good. Really a lot of different ways that you can be stimulated. There's like toys that have a mirror that they can look back and see themselves. It's, it's a whole thing. I didn't know about tummy time until we got, until we got the toys, until we got the stuffed animals that are going to be excellent for that. I'm, I'm, so I'm going to be a for you. This is so fire. I will probably not be talking a whole lot about tummy time in the near future. So yeah, that's, we'll, we'll just throw that word out there for the, for the parents at home listening, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. First one, I am totally open to the idea of Evan Stewart leading the sec and receiving. I'm open to it. I'm not saying that I'm going out on a limb and I'm saying that that's definitely going to happen, but I find myself in this spot where I'm like, I, I just want to be, I want to move past the stance that I had last year about Evan Stewart because this entire period leading up to the season, I kept saying, let's take a breath. AM fans, take a breath. Do not get too excited about a five-star receiver because he's being asked to do a ton. And I get it. He's unbelievably talented. But my, my thing that I kept coming back to is like, all right, show me a five ten receiver who stepped into the sec and dominated as an outside guy, as a true freshman. That just like, it's one thing if you're built like Amari Cooper, you're Julio Jones, all right, to do Odell. that. True freshman Odell. True freshman Odell. I don't know if he's dominant. That's a good point, yeah. And I think Odell lined up in the slot a decent amount because they were starting to spread things out a little. I know LSU didn't exactly employ a whole lot of slot receivers back in the day. <laughs> well, they, Listen, back then, playing in the slot for LSU was playing the bench, buddy. <laughs> True. Good point. Well, good point. So yeah, not a whole lot of guys with that sort of size, that frame that have necessarily come into this league and taken it by storm. And the numbers, as we pointed out last year, they were working against him at AM coming into last season, the best season by a true freshman wide receiver. That's excluding tight ends. The best that we had seen from a true freshman in that spot in the Jimbo offense was Anaya Smith with 248 receiving yards. That's it. That's all. And at Florida State, it was a thing too. Rashad Green had 598 receiving yards back in 2011. Travis Rudolph had 555 yards in 2014. But other than that, no true freshman under Jimbo Fisher's offense at Florida State, while he's the head coach, had more than 300 yards. Well, Evan Stewart beat all those guys, and he did it in 10 games. He was awesome. He was really, really good. 649 receiving yards as a true freshman, and that was in an offense that I cannot emphasize enough sucked it sucked basura basura it was straight basura for way too much of the year three different starting quarterbacks no sort of deception no way to scheme downfield at least not with the personnel that they had calling plays stewart wasn't getting the advantage that those tennessee receivers would get where they could get a defensive backfield that was on its on its heels because of the tempo that they would run and yet despite all of those different things Evan Stewart was eighth in the SEC in receiving yards per game. He was second in the SEC in catches per game behind only Jalen Hyatt. That's it. The dude balled. He was excellent. It probably helped him a little bit that AM's receiving core was gutted by injuries. So he kind of became the option. If you go back to that goal line fade that Jimbo drew up at the end of the Alabama game, who are they targeting on that play? Evan Stewart. You know who else? And everybody knew it. <laughs> everybody there was nobody else sorry when Anaya smith isn't out there yeah and to do that in that spot i disagreed with it but you still look back on that game you're like oh evan stewart hit the century mark against a pretty good alabama secondary not too shabby for a true freshman so i don't want to take 
I, I don't I don't necessarily want it to be like, oh, well, he only got in that spot because he was the only option because you could draw some Kayshawn Booty comparisons. Maybe that's a good example of a guy who was undersized by typical oh, how did outside. we not think of that guy? It's wrong LSU guy, yeah. Even he, though, look at the first half of his season. First yeah. half of his season, like, took a while to get going. It was really kind of only that, like, half a season, and then Terrace Marshall when he opts out, and, and really when he starts to tick off. So I look at all those different things, and I, I just I find myself becoming more and more impressed with what Evan Stewart did. Lined up on the outside 88% of the time. Not easy to do that. And so this year, you might have some of that production dialed back a little bit with Anaya Smith returning. You might ne- not necessarily see him get force-fed targets in the same sort of way. But I could also spin it and be like, well, I think he's just going to get single coverage a lot. And Evan Stewart in single coverage is pretty darn good. And I'm going to be honest. I don't think he's getting a whole lot of double coverage as a true freshman, probably getting a lot of single coverage last year too. Beside the point, I wanted to see if he was more than a guy who could just high point the football and make you turn into a better offense. And he ended up doing that. And it wasn't necessarily just like, you know, some of the George Pickens things, which I was down on George Pickens. I think I'm somewhat justified and, and not necessarily thinking he was like this all time great receiver unbelievable talents, but didn't necessarily do those things that you wanted to see over the course of a season, even though he was obviously explosive as a true freshman and the things that he did, Georgia wasn't used to having in that sort of way. Evan Stewart's a little bit like that, but I do think the signs he showed as a true freshman are so promising. And I am buying whatever sort of stock is left for Evan Stewart, even though I'm buying high and that's probably not what you should do. He's not going to be first team all SEC for me. I think neighbors, I think juice. I think those guys are more established. They deserve those spots, but I think he starts as a second team guy who has immense potential to be the first thousand yard receiver in the Jimbo era at AM. We're back in on Evan Stewart. Yeah, no. And I think that's the thing. It's like, he was similar to our boy, um, Luther burden at Mizzou, where it's like, it's very obvious. These guys are talented players. Their offenses just cannot get them the football. And, and I think that that's, you know, he was kind of the victim of that in that everyone could tell what his skill set was, but he was just there a little bit too early. He was in an offense that uh, didn't really fit his skill set. And I mean, I feel like playing the receiver in Jimbo's old Jimbo now, not new Jimbo with Bobby Petrino, which we're told is going to be a completely different thing, but old Jimbo system, like playing outside receiver is like playing power forward in like the eighties NBA. It's like, you got to be physical. You got to like win these one-on-one matchups. You, there's some stick to the game. No, there's no, it's not easy. There's not a lot of dunks. It's a lot of just post offense. And it's like I, watching a guy that small and that young try to operate with guys just stuck to him and like with quarterback revolving door. And it's just like, i never blamed him. I never thought it was his fault. It's just one of those that's like, you know, I mean, like fantasy football, for instance, is one of the things that's kind of like broken our brains as far as we expect X number of catches, yards, touchdowns. And for him, his talent outweighed that. You could see how defenses would respect him. You could see how they were going to him, even when it didn't make sense as much at the end of the game because he was just clearly the best player. And so, yeah, I hope that his production finally echoes his talent and everybody else can just get back out of the way. That'd be great. I'm glad you brought up Luther Burden because that's a point I should have brought up. You can be really talented and we can see what that talent looks like when you're a five-star receiver and you don't necessarily have to be this 6'3", 6'4", prototypical guy. And it can still be a struggle to get you those looks because we talked about that a lot with Luther Burden. You can't just line up that guy on the outside and assume that your scheme is going to take care of him and get him the volume that he needs. Whereas with Evan Stewart, 
I would argue that's way more established at this point. Like mm-hmm. at this point of his career, he's kind of already shown like, yeah, stick me on a one, stick me on a two corner and stick me on a guy who plays exclusively on the outside and press coverage and, and I'll go up and I'll make plays. And so for the A&M fans who are telling me this guy's further along than you're giving him credit for, you're hundred percent right. And I was wrong in that area. And what he showed as a true freshman has me very excited about what he's doing. And it's part of the reason why I'm talking about this A&M offense, making a significant improvement. If it is indeed Bobby Petrino's offense and not just Jimbo Fisher masquerading as Bobby Petrino, which what a sight that just <laughs> that just popped into my brain. The Scooby Doo disguise. Hey, you were Jimbo Fisher this whole time. Uh, <laughs> you thought Bobby Petrino? Uh, Would have gotten away with it. Wasn't for you, rogue boosters. All right, other thing. Nothing in the SEC has fallen off more than the Florida defense. Nothing. Will I know? I'm not going to get any pushback from you on that one. I feel like, and probably a lot of people feel like, we have spent so much time talking about the Florida quarterback situation and not enough talking about how much the Florida defense has just fallen from grace in such significant ways. And I know we talked about in 2020 after that season, oh, it's the it's the worst Florida defense since the Woodrow Wilson administration. I'm pretty sure that's at the root of why we started making presidential references. That and the Jimmy Carter thing with Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- those two are kind of our landmark presidential uh, administration reference points. It hasn't gotten worse in terms of the scoring per game, although you should probably just throw out 2020 with how big of an outlier that year was for defenses. Mm -hmm. But in terms of SEC ranks, it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. 11th in the SEC they were in scoring in 2021. That was the lame duck Todd Grantham year. And then last year, you're tied for 10th in the SEC with Patrick Toney, who left in February to go take a defensive backs job with the Cardinals. Weird. And not good, especially when that happens in February. Not ideal. Mm-hmm. Another, Probably another good reminder because Tony was a guy who came with Napier from Louisiana. Don't be the, the guy who brings like your entire group of five staff over with you. I always bring up the Scott Frost point. You end up being too loyal to these guys and you actually can't evaluate them in the way that you should. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty out on that premise. I know there are examples where you can find where it has worked, but gosh, I just think looking at some of these situations, I'm like, you probably could have done better at being able to just go out into the open market and hire for that position. So now Billy Napier goes out into the open market. He hires 20 something defensive coordinator, Austin Armstrong, who well, now, hold on. He, he coached for Billy. This is the same guy. Okay. So, he has, yes, he has spent time with Billy, but a little bit different than to bring him directly from the program that you just were at. So that's, okay. he's at Southern Miss, was the youngest defensive coordinator at the FBS level. This guy who is 29 years old, he will turn 30 this year. I mean, Matt Hayes wrote about this a couple of months ago. His story is, is actually pretty wild. Like seven years ago, he's just driving around the state of Alabama, passing out resumes to any co- any college, just take a chance on me. I mean, really was trying to put himself out there and get into this business as much as possible. And he was desperate at that time. Florida is desperate at this time. And maybe they're going to figure some things out with Armstrong. And I'm not saying that they can't. Spring games are spring games. Take them for what they will. Probably a really good sign. Lost in the shuffle of that disastrous offensive showing was that Austin Armstrong's unit looked pretty good. And he was very fired up with every single thing that he did in that game. But Billy Napier is essentially saying, okay, you were good enough for Nick Saban. You're good enough for me. 
that's that's kind of what this came down to because he was going to be the linebackers coach at Alabama, and then he ends up saying, mm, no, this is this opportunity is too good to be able to turn down. But the fall from grace, man, like Florida fans know it, but I'm not sure enough on the outside do. We can look at the profile, the you know, the profile of the quarterbacks and, and just point to that and say that's why Florida has struggled so much the last couple of years. But think about this from 2008 to 2019. Florida only had one season allowing north of 21.3 points per game. And it was the 2017 McElwain credit card nine, you know, that whole deal, Mm -hmm. just a lost season through and through last year, South Carolina and Mizzou were the only FBS teams who didn't hit at least 21 points against Florida. Bad. Haven't had an all SEC guy on the defensive side. The last two years haven't really come particularly close. I mean, that's not a good sign. Florida, you can at least you could always pencil in for a handful of those guys. Even if they weren't first team future first round picks, they always just had a handful of those guys around. And mm-hmm. to think that they've gone two years without even that is just stunning. They've been so bad on third down. It's no longer just a third and Grantham joke that you can make about the third down issues. It's really, really bad. Getting Florida back to being just one of the better defenses in the SEC, it feels like it's a way more realistic goal than trying to find the next great Gator quarterback. Yeah, I think that like one thing that's underrated <clears throat> about kind of like Muschamp and the talent, right, is and we kind of talked about it. It was like a joke that Georgia fans are making about like, well, let's see when Mullen gets his talent in there. I mean, they've never really recovered from Muschamp's talent. Like Muschamp's talent was on this level that we haven't seen since they all get out of the system. And, you know, at the time we were really focused on these guys, you know, NFL success, talking about Tease Tabers, CC Jefferson, like guys like that, at um, Vernon Hargreaves, like guys that were kind of didn't live up to NFL expectations. But the thing is, you could be a great great all sec defensive player and not be a great nfl player and i think that's something that's lost on people is that those rosters were chock full of dudes who were great college football players and kind of nothing else and at the time it was like well will these guys be great nfl players but now florida's at the point where it's like you really just need some great college players you need yes. some like three four year guys that are leaders that are like you know give me like uh jared davis type guys that are just gonna like kind of be part of the defense and have some pride in the defense and like i remember i mean the last Florida team that beat Joe Burrow was that team in 2018. It ended on a pick six off Joe Burrow. We talked about it, you know, one of the recent episodes that you guys will see later. And like point being, like, I think. No, we talked about was, that last week. That was. In, oh, we uh, did. Yeah, we talked about that with the, the Burrow five year anniversary. Yes. You're right. We're splitting duty now. So I forget what's already come out. But point <laughs> being, like, you know, th- that was what, what you would fear about the Florida teams. It wasn't about, you know, this revolving door quarterback that they always had under like Muschamp and um, Mac. Like it was about, OK, we got quarterback figured out. That's why we were so bullish about Florida is once they got quarterback figured out, they almost had everything else under Muschamp and, and Mac. And so point being, it was it was almost like these old Alabama or LSU teams where you knew that you know, the offense wasn't really going to win it for you. So the defense was, it was, they were the showtime. They were, they were what you came to see. And yeah, I think that there, a lot of pride has been lost on that side of the ball. I think it's more than just talent. It's that, you know, it, you know, seeing that Gator chomp, going to the swamp, having the place rocking, you know, we've seen so many opponents come in there and just have their way with this Florida defense. And I think that that's that level of pride. You know, you need players to have the leadership, but you also need to see it with your eyes. You need to have this new generation of players have something to be proud of. And so they got to restart from zero because nobody on the roster right now can even remember that. The only guy that right now is move the needle must watch is our King Desmond Watson. Desmond Watson. I was about to say, I saw something the other day that he got heavier this offseason, dude. Man. That is heavier from what, though? Because his weight, I think his weight has gone 
like the range is about 50 pounds and i'm not here to like to fat shame or anything like that i i've literally no, he's talked good to he's really freaking good like it's he's, he's really good him. and i like i I've talked to his high school coach about his weight and about mm-hmm. how crazy it is that he can actually play at the weights that that he has played at in his career and his snap count, you would expect to be way, way less. And it's actually pretty good, but you still, you need more guys than that. If, if your entire defensive hopes are pinned on, you know, a guy who let's be honest, like he's never going to be a truly high volume guy. That's, that's, that's part of the problem. It's like, if you were a basketball team, you're like, Oh yeah, we got this guy who could really light it up off the bench. And it's like, well, that's that's not ideal if your six man is your leading score. You got to be able to figure oh, yes. some other things out. Yeah, it was one of the um one of the forecast guys reporting this out that his listed weight I think went from four fifteen to four twenty, and it was like, hey, you know what, spin zone. If you only have one player, hey, get a two for one, make him the size of two players. How about that? So that's a great point. That's <laughs> a great point. We'll talk about Desmond Watson. I'm sure a lot this year. Okay, something I've never said on a- any place, any place, but I've I've just been thinking about this a lot, and I'm gonna get some pushback, and I'm not saying that that you're wrong if you're going to oppose this opinion, but, but hear me out on this. I'm tempering my Quinshawn Judkins expectations. I'm tempering them. And here, here's why I love his game. Truly love it. Love the acceleration love that. He's just like that one cut guy. His vision is so great at this stage of his career. Like all those different things have me thinking sky's the limit for this dude. What he did as a true freshman, he is a star. He is a bona fide star to lead the SEC in rushing and to do so as a three-star recruit who steps into that offense wherein he was third in the pecking order and he quickly was a go-to guy. He's the first SEC freshman to lead the conference in rushing since Manziel. And Manziel wasn't even a true freshman, okay? Oh my gosh. That's So think about it from that. First that, yeah. Fastest true freshman to thousand yards since Emmett Smith. Okay. Did it in seven games. Guy's awesome. He's really good. But I worry about the volume. And I worry with these true freshman tailbacks who come into the league and then all of a sudden all eyes are on them. I worry about the injury issues. Mm-hmm. Lattimore, Chubb, mm. Gurley. That's the category he's already in. Mm-hmm. He had a better true freshman season than all of those guys. Okay, and you might say, "Oh, yeah, these guys have more explosive plays; they're playing more meaningful games." I'm just just in terms of rushing yards, he had a better season than those guys. He is at least in that group as we talk about the great true freshman performances by SEC running backs. And we often assume that it's this it's this linear progression, right? The guy's 19 years old; he's only going to get better. I get it. If it's a linear progression with Judkins. He's going to be an all-time great, and I'll continue to sing his praises. And we'll have a whole lot more to say about that man. But I just worry that with his size, like 210 pounds, he likes to run through guys. I And we know the volume is going to be there. The guy had more than – he had 40 more carries than anybody in the SEC last year, okay? I just find myself if he's going to be missing – I find myself wondering if he's going to be missing games or if we're maybe not going to see the best version of him at all points this season. So if the conversation – is and if i'm being asked hey like can this guy who just delivered the 19th most productive season ever by an sec running back not just true freshman ever okay can he take another step and and be like an 1800 yard guy 
I would probably take the under on that. And I just find myself worrying about him taking on that kind of workload as a year two guy who's at the top of every scouting report. He's not sneaking up on teams in mid-October. Kentucky, oh, that game last year when all of a sudden that guy burst through the hole and you see that guy off and running, you're like, oh boy, who the hell is this kid? That's not happening to him at any point in this year. And I think they're gonna they're gonna try and conserve him a little bit. You're gonna try and get Ulysses Bentley a little bit more involved, coming to a future all bang the drum team. Spoiler alert: still love Quinchon Judkins. Just worry about that sophomore injury bug hitting him the way that we've seen this play out with other great true freshman backs in the SEC. Uh, one guy I was thinking of his name, I was looking it up. Michael Dyer was the king of that. And that dude, I mean, with his run in the national championship game against Oregon, I've never been so excited for a non-LSU running back. Like I remember being with this guy's limit. It was him and Lattimore that I believe were in the same class. And obviously their careers ended you know, different, but still a little bit disappointing in different reasons. Uh, but yeah, he was fifth in the SEC in rushing with Cam Newton leading the SEC in rushing on the same team. So like, yeah, it's, I, I think that it's been very, very rare. Like you said, for running, for freshman running backs to be as productive as he have has been. But I think you're right on the money in that, you know, it would be almost unwise to ride him the way that they had to, you know, for the future and not just as a college player, but as an NFL player. And we see this so many times guys will get to the NFL and they have all these carries on them and then they just kind of break down and, you know, not to say, Oh, well save him for the NFL. But you know, if you're a three-star and you're doing what he did last year, who's to say what your future is going to be. So I think that's a really smart decision if they decide to go that way for lane, but exactly to our point earlier about, you know, people expect an amount of yards carries at this point because of, you know, fantasy football and all SEC teams. And so people are going to act like he had a disappointing second year when I think it would be disappointing if he had a better year, because you just can't keep going up, you know, then where you in year three, where are you in the draft? I think that, you know, it'd be smart to kind of take it off the gas a little bit. Yeah, it, it, and there are a lot of people listening to that who are going to say, "Why would you want to take this take it off the gas? You, you've got a 19 year old with fresh legs. Take advantage of this now." And I, I'm not saying that they won't do that. He's still going to get his work. He's a, he's a tremendous player, but you just kind of wonder, like, okay, like, can we have this guy for the full duration of 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 the three years that he could, in theory, be here? I went back and I looked back at um at his his high school carries. I think he was just under 500 total carries according to max preps take those stats for what you will so it's not necessarily like some some derrick henry situation where go back and look at those high school numbers but oh man that guy i don't know when that guy got a water break with how much he was being played back in high school but so not necessarily a situation like that but i just tend to think with so much attention on you those opportunities for you to just take that one bad hit like that increases probably more than we give it credit for and there's a reason why these true freshman guys who come in it's so hard to take that next step after doing the things that he did in year 1 okay different note non sec note i think the acc is sort of screwed oh yeah i think the acc is in some deep doo doo well if you didn't see the weird dynamic with the ACC meetings last week or so, the as Brett McMurphy called them, the Magnificent Seven, you miss this strange divide wherein the top-tier ACC programs pushed for these performance-based revenue incentives, a revenue, a revenue system that would essentially reward performance and what that could potentially look like. It was Clemson, Florida State, Miami, UNC, NC State, Virginia Tech, and Virginia all working behind the scenes to either get more money from the conference for being good (laughs) or simply break away and start a new conference that isn't totally hamstrung by the grant of rights deal, which as we know, it locks the ACC in through 2036. I 
said a lot, but I, I just don't think there's a clean way out of the grant of rights deal. I just don't, because if there were, I'm going to assume yeah. <laughs> they've been trying. They've been trying. I'd love to know what those lawyers are on retainer for. I would just love to know how much money has been spent behind closed doors at each of these ACC programs being like, hey, loophole there, loophole there. Like they call them into the office. Hey, we might have something. We might have. Nope, nope. Actually, go back to work. We don't have anything. Just paid $1,000 an hour to go and try and find all the different ways in which you could get out of this. And so far, no good, nothing. If you want to understand why this dynamic exists in the ACC, but not in the SEC with like Vandy and Alabama or in the Big Ten with Rutgers and Ohio State, the SEC is getting the ACC is getting passed up. That's right. the issue. All these other conferences are looking around going, hey, we can renegotiate this. We can renegotiate that. And they're not in that spot. They're just not. We're soon going to be living in a world in which UCF, as a new Big 12 member, will be earning more from its media deal than Florida State. And boy, that's probably not sitting well with the good old boys at Tallahassee. It's mm -hmm. just not. Okay. So if you're the ACC, how do you make Florida State happy and not just make them say like, oh, yeah, like. Here's your excuse to leave us as soon as you possibly can. How? What can you possibly do if you're the ACC? Pizza party. That's a good idea. That's a Dabo idea. <laughs> for Dabo, that might work. For Florida State, I don't know. I don't know. A lunch and learn, perhaps? Ooh. Lauren talks about lunch and learns all the time. I, I would not be focused on the learn. I'd be focused on the lunch. What's Same. What kind of spread are we looking are we Are we talking Panera? Are, are we talking Tapas? There's different degrees of a lunch and learn in which who knows I, I don't know what's going to woo the acc like when they bring out uh the the cookies in the office and they're mm -hmm. like this simple gift of cookies instead of one percent on sales yeah that look some things work better than others that's about all they can do for the acc though I mean, what do you think uh, maybe uh, like even the so i could poke holes in the performance-based revenue model because i don't know how you value that and say big revenue sport if you win 10 games, it's worth X amount of dollars. But if you're great at a non-big revenue sport, sorry, you don't get a big piece of the pie. And for those who are saying, well, Connor, that's basic capitalism. It's still supposed to be somewhat amateurism, somewhat, at least on the back end and the way that it works. We could poke holes and say that it's not. It's definitely not. But it's still really complicated to be able to sign off on those things and all the different parties that are connected to it. So even if you were able to find that balance, and let's just say hypothetically, you're the ACC, you're sitting there and you're like, we figured this out. We have a true performance-based revenue model and it's going to work. I still think it's the beginning of the end. Look at Texas and Oklahoma. How'd that mm -hmm. work out for them? You get special treatment from the con from the conference? That's just a decade to be able to say, hey, this works for now. This is a temporary solution to give you the Longhorn Network. But in the end... What did Texas and Oklahoma do? They left in the middle of the night. They left as soon as they possibly could because there's a more profitable life raft over there. And why wouldn't you? I don't blame them for that. So that's that's really where this kind of falls apart. And you know, you can kind of look at this and be like, well, I, I just feel like all these ACC schools right now, like they're, they're just they're, they're about to go to couples therapy. That's that's what these meetings were. We just watched the breakup with Vince Vaughn and, and Jennifer Aniston. Spoiler Classic. alert. 
Yeah. I think it is a classic. It's a really good movie. I think it's a good movie. It's just a little bit different. You think they're going to get together at the end? Spoiler alert. It's been out for 17 years. All right. They realize in the end, despite both of them kind of making their last, their last ditch pleas to, to keep the relationship alive, they just decide we can't do this. We just, we just can't do this. They are who they are and they need to go their separate ways. I think eventually that could happen in the ACC. I, I really do. The grants of rights deal, it's going to it's going to be the conference's undoing because even if you keep everyone at the top happy for the next decade with a super complicated model for performance-based revenue sharing, you're still going to see those, those other teams just like waiting for that deal to run out just so that you can join another conference that is going to be in a different spot financially than you are. And they're going to do that as soon as humanly possible. So I think it's the beginning and the end of the ACC. Yeah, they're cooked. Um, <laughs> I agree. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's like, and even even ten years through the law. I mean, I'm sure if you told the ACC you can keep these schools here for ten years, they'd be like, "Brother, sign me up for whatever unfair. Just go ahead and bet. it's fine." But yeah, I mean, they'll be out of here as soon as they can. And I mean, the thing that's a little bit crazy to me, not to get in the weeds of that, you know, but when you talk about these teams, it's like, okay, so Virginia and VT think that they're part of the magnificent seven. Duke is not in here. Duke is not in here. See, like, that's weird to me because it's like, how is Duke basketball going to continue to be as successful as they have been without that type of money? Because mm-hmm. that it's like, they need money to recruit kids, like, period. Like, that's the only high-level program that we kind of have left, you know, if you do that. And like I said, it's very funny that, like, VT and Virginia are just like, well, you know, we're really the blue bloods here. It's like, Virginia, I don't know who you think you are, buddy. Yeah, you have one recent basketball title, but again, we're talking about Duke. Why aren't they in here? So, like, and VT hasn't been good, honestly, since like those two quarterbacks we were talking about, um, the like the uh, Logan Thomas and uh, the other one that Tyron I can't Taylor. Hold. Yeah, Tyron Taylor. There you go. Like that. That's kind of the last time they've been relevant when they played Ohio State, I guess. But like, I just the gall, <laughs> the gall is where I'm coming from here. The Duke thing is, I think you could actually still get enough Duke alumni. NIL money put together it's where it doesn't really matter conference affiliation with them I actually think mm-hmm. Duke basketball could operate as an independent and be just fine and not like Notre Dame football that would be actually kind of better for them Ooh, yeah I could like see this. this okay I could see that being an option in the long term but of course we're what's the point of even talking about it as long as the grants of rights deal exists and mm-hmm. if, if and that's the other thing that I wonder about too is yes these non-magnificent seven who need a nickname there needs to be a nickname for those other seven schools. If these if these schools are forced to accept the terms of this deal, this performance-based revenue model, what are they going to look like in 2036? They're going to be pretty pissed off. They're going to be like, wait a minute. All these other Power Five conferences, they, just, they, got, they got an even cut. And we got to deal with this just because we're not very good at the sports that, that bring in all the revenue. I'm not saying that that's right. But they're gonna they're gonna look up and be like let's let's find another place to to let's find another conference to join. We're, we don't have to worry about that. And we're just getting a, a a check that looks the same no matter what. And that's that's the goal. And it's not a given. So I mean, the ACC. I think they wish they could be in the position of the Big Ten, who is currently in the midst of just an absolute disaster uh, that Kevin Warren left him in with this media contract. They're at least negotiating over like yes the media deal isn't signed it's a really bad spot to be when that that conf, that contract is supposed to be going into place in three months but excuse least, me the deal is not signed oh well this has been the, the, the pete the Amel story that broke not great kevin warren essentially what's what's a nice way to say this kevin warren sold somebody a house and played the role as realtor 
and the, the 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 new families ready to move into the house and and they get the movers they get all their stuff moved in and they've been in the house for a few days and then the previous owners come up come back and they're like wait a minute we we were just in Europe for a couple months what what do you mean we didn't sell our house there's no signed documents of this what what are you talking about Kevin Warren um he he essentially did that and did not finalize this media contract that made all of those headlines in August. And now the Big Ten is scrambling to try and figure out what this is going to look like before the start of the season. I think even the ACC is in worse shape than that. At least they have. nice thing I've said about the Big Ten. Buddy, if this deal falls through, it is going to be a fun time. It's going to be a fun time. Anyway. If you see Greg Sankey in public, praise that man. Because there's no way Greg Sankey's ever putting the SEC in the position that Kevin Warren just put the Big Ten in. All right, last thing. The SEC East, it won't be like this for long. Duh, Connor, idiot. Shout out Darius Rucker. I'm assuming that pretty soon that song is going to hit a little bit differently. That's what I've been told. I have been asked more times than I can count, hey, who's second in the East this year? Does anyone have a chance to get in Georgia's way? And my answer is, let me say it in Spanish for you. No, Nobody has a chance to get in George's way. I don't know how to say that entire sentence in Spanish, but I said the first part of it in Spanish for you. I don't even want to float that into the universe that, oh, somebody can really upend Georgia. I'd rather just call it like it is and point to the fact that Georgia's winning the East without much competition. And it's silly to put anyone else on that level, even Tennessee, who I obviously put on that level last year, at least for one 60 minute stretch of time in Athens. That didn't work out so well. But here's the good news. And here's the, it won't be like this for long because we know that this conference is going to look very different next year. I'm assuming by the time I come back from paternity leave, we're going to have an announcement about the SEC's new scheduling model. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be really daunting to look at what a potential nine-game conference schedule is, because that's what I think, that's the direction I think we're heading in. It's going to make it more competitive, all those things. No longer will it just feel like for these non-Georgia SEC East teams, crap. Dogs are standing in the way of our happiness. We will live in a world in which you can be an SEC East team. You can go nine and three. You can get clubbed by Georgia. You can miss the SEC championship and you can still get to the playoff. That's happening. That's coming up. Okay. These years, these years have, have happened within the East and we've always had the, yeah, but of, Oh, well, you know what? They didn't get to Atlanta. They didn't get to do this. And no longer will that be the case for these SEC East teams who have that breakthrough season. Imagine Tennessee last year if we had had the 12-team playoff. Like, obviously, Georgia loss would have stung no matter what. South Carolina loss would have been a really bad look. But they still would have made the playoff. And they still would have had a chance to potentially win a playoff game in what would have been the biggest game of the 21st century for Tennessee football. And that's kind of the world that we could be living in very soon here. Even if you lose a quarterfinal or a semifinal game, if you're a team like Tennessee, that regular season loss to Georgia is such an afterthought. And no longer are you simply just like, oh, we're measuring ourselves against Georgia. Nobody should do that. Okay. You just shouldn't. It's this is going to be a weird comp. Stay with me on this one. Do it. It's like teenagers who are told, hey, to be a model, you must look this way. And maybe, you know, like time has passed and now. We are living in a world in which models come in all shapes and sizes, different races, different visions of what's considered beautiful. And we now accept 
that entire industry in a different sort of way. And we just say, hey, look, this is no longer the one way in which you can be beautiful. Beating Georgia is no longer the one ticket to be relevant in the SEC East. There are other ways to be relevant in the East. That's the non-Georgia SEC East as it approaches this final year in which, let's be honest, like all roads to Atlanta likely to be blocked by Georgia. And I don't think moving forward, these teams in the SEC East who have had to hear about, oh, who's second in the East? Who's second in the East? No longer do you have to worry about anything like that. You can kind of exist in your own different universe, your own different tier within the SEC. Do we have playoff chance? Do we not have a playoff chance? It's not simply about can we get past Georgia, climb that mountain, get to the SEC championship. Makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I had kind of committed myself to the divisionless model that had come out from some of like the some rumblings from the Sankey press conference. However, I've been seeing this graphic that's been going on on social media. And I'm just here to say, you know, if you guys want to put all those hard teams in the East and have LSU beat up on the old Southwest Conference, I'm more than happy with that. We'll take Arkansas, A&M, Texas, Oklahoma. That's fine. Keep Alabama over there. One final plea. But I, but I think, I think yeah, that's kind of the way of the future, right? I mean, I think that – uh you know, it used to mean a lot to just kind of like win your division. And we've kind of grown up with the divisions, especially the East, kind of going back and forth between like Florida, Georgia, and Mizzou in there, you know, one South Carolina sprinkled in. Uh, but yeah, I think that stuff, like you said, is going to matter less and less. And so we just need to adjust expectations. And I think it's weird because we always said, SEC East, you have such a great advantage. You know, to get past Bama and how quickly that has changed. And the timing of this is actually working out really well that it's no longer just looking like it's going to be, oh, can you get past Georgia? That's the good news. And Anything Georgia stopped puking on their shoes as well. Like it used to be like, oh, if you're Florida, all you got to do is get to like one or two losses and then beat Georgia and just wait till they puke on their shoes. And now it's just like, well, Georgia's not going to do that. They're going to lose maybe one game. So you will need to physically beat them and hope that you don't lose another game because they won't. Nine and three. That's the goal. Nine and three. Lose to Georgia by 30. All right, whatever. <laughs> Roll with it. Get into the playoff by any means necessary. Anything that I'm forgetting, in um, terms of a, um, in terms of a something that, something I might forget. Something that like, look, coming back three weeks from now, I might just be in a different sort of headspace. Something that I should be talking about more that I haven't talked about enough this off season. Make sure someone's watering your lawn. Are you gone? Oh, we got sprinklers. We're good. We're yeah. good. Right. We're good. No, we got rain. This... We got rain every day this week. Good this mother nature's taking care. Come yeah. on now. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's that's about it for me, man. All right, let's kick it to Ari Washman. Great conversation with him talking Dylan Riola, the the recruiting and developing talent as a whole, the trends that he and the athletic have kind of uncovered, and a little about the news that we got involving the new NCAA video game. So here's Ari. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Ari Washman of the Athletic. All right, we're officially even. I promised you that I would consume not one, but two filet of fish sandwiches uh, before mm -hmm. I would criticize your take that it is an elite fast food sandwich. Took me almost a year, knocked out two on selection Sunday. I can officially say that I stand corrected. I think it's a perfectly fine fast food sandwich that should not be mocked from skeptics like myself. Yeah, but uh, not elite though. It's 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 a really solid sandwich. I'm I will here's here's what I'll do for you. Here's what I'll do. Because I have not come up with my official rankings of what elite fast food sandwiches are. There's only a few that come to mind. Yeah. I will not push back on you when you say that. How about that? Yeah, I'll take that. Um, you know, it just sounds gross, but it actually is really good. Um 
But, you know, if somebody said like the spicy chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A, I'm not going to argue. It's preference is preferences. All you can ask is that somebody tried it. You did it. And you got two to make sure that you didn't get a bum one, yep. which extra credit on my part. And, you know, we are square and I appreciate it. So uh, I'm ready to get into this. Are we are we going to fire off some hot takes today or what? Let's do it. Let's get let's get in right okay. right into it. So I want to talk some Dylan Riola with you. I definitely thought mm-hmm. it was Rayola. And then I heard his dad on the Georgia rival site pronounce it Riola. And I was like, all right, so we're yeah. defaulting to that now. So uh, learning new things about him already. What has been your uh, take on just kind of his game overall and why is he going to be, as Georgia fans are hoping and maybe saying kind of blindly, in a different stratosphere than Arch Manning? Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know about that. Like, <laughs> we, neither of them have played college football yet. So, uh, you know, they are both the number one overall player in the country. And the thing with uh, Ryola is that he's six foot three, 220 pounds, and might not be done growing yet. And like, I don't know. I think that people just love throwing out dumbass comparisons, but you know, people think that he plays the game kind of like Patrick Mahomes because he's just a big bodied guy who can move and has a big arm. Um, You know, and that to me is exciting. So, you know, I, I go to the elite 11 every year. And the thing that I always try to remind people, Connor, is that you have these quarterbacks uh, who are rated five stars or, you know, are in this position. And then they go to this camp, right? And in this camp, they usually have alums also participating in the drills, like guys who are currently on college rosters. Uh, and last year, uh, CJ Stroud and Caleb Williams and guys like that were out there doing the drills with them. And the difference between the high school skill set and the college skill set um, even after maybe a year or two is so vastly different. And it's insane to me how hard it is to per- actu- accurately project um, what somebody will turn out to be. Now, measurables and the things that put you in these positions, winning, pedigree, arm strength, vision, leadership, all that stuff is important. And you have a pretty good grasp of it. And both Caleb Williams and CJ Stroud were top 50 players. So, you know, there, there's a correlation, but to get to the Heisman level, there's so much growth that has to occur between where they are now and where they're going to be in two years that it's really neat to kind of see how since it's like a reminder of how do you project these guys? And it was like last year, uh, and I'm not trying to come down on Jaden Rashada, but he was there and he hit me in the side of the face with a or the side of the, my body with an errant pass. And it's like, we're offering this guy $13.8 million. You know, and that maybe that's not his fault or, you know, and it wasn't, you know, it's the collective thing and all that stuff. But it's like, it's hard. It's really, really hard. It's actually your fault for not catching it. So I wasn't looking. I was actually FaceTiming my baby. uh, Good night with my wife and the ball hit me because it it just like was just funny because, uh, you know, you're thinking about all the, the top players. And this isn't just a Rashada thing. All those guys are airmailing passes and you know, missing throws and all that stuff. And it, it just hit me. And it's just like, I had an epiphany there. It's like, wow, if this hits me and I'm in the back of an end zone and he's throwing it f- 10 yards, we really sure this NIL thing's the right way to go about, you know, you know, it's, it's, it was just a funny moment, but yeah, I mean, I, I anticipate that he'll be great. I anticipate that Georgia uh, will be just fine with him. Uh, I actually thought that the most interesting thing about his commitment isn't so much how good he is or where he's going, I thought that where he's not going was more telling. I that's, think that's, that's that's part that's got to be factored into this and like kind of wondering about, okay, 
So like what pushes him in the direction of Georgia after deciding he's not going to, he's decommitting from Ohio state in December. And then, Oh, he's not going to follow the the Heisman factory to Lincoln Riley at USC. He's not going to follow in his dad's footsteps at Nebraska and go there. But, you know, thinking about it, I was kind of like wondering about all these different factors and tell me if I'm crazy to think this, but I, I almost wonder if he looks at Georgia's situation in addition to how they've modernized their offense, what they did with Todd Munkin and those concepts, but not having a quarterback in that class ahead of him, can that be one of those things where like a guy looks at that and is like, wait a minute. So I mean, even if I don't play as a true freshman, I get a draft eligible guy in that spot. And it's almost like what Arch has at Texas with Ewers being draft eligible this year when he arrives. So it kind of just sets up well. It, do, is that a factor at all? Or am I just kind of over, overthinking that? I'm assuming it's all a factor. I mean, if you go back and you look at, you know, Dylan Rayle, Ryle, I'm with tough, you on that. Man. But, it's uh, tough. Uh, Ryola, yeah. Uh the the place he was committed to before in Ohio State and the place that he ended up. I mean, I think it was obviously clear uh that he wanted to go to a place that's in that that current football factory mine or uh you know space. And I like thought and I wrote a column about this after, but it's like Nebraska had every single potential sales pitch that a program could possibly have for a, rep- a prospect. New exciting head coach, uh, family line. Dad was an All-American there. Uncle is currently on the staff, visited six times in two years. Uh, and it's like Nebraska didn't get him, you know, and it was just a reminder that, you know, the way that the sport is set up right now, that all these players, regardless of positions or, you know, where they're from, want to play at a select few schools. Um and that's kind of disheartening for the average football fan, I think, because there's a lot of Nebraska fans and Mizzou fans and Michigan State fans and all these programs that have, you know, uh, nice traditions and, and deep fan bases. It's like, what are we going to do to stop the top 60, 65 players in the country from going to four schools over and over again? And when are we going to get to a point where picking the national championship in this sport is more complex than just picking one of the five teams that can do it, you know? And it's like, I was kind of surprised that he didn't go to USC because, you know, after his visit there, it seemed uh, like he was really, really liking it. And, uh, you know, with him specifically, it's like the team that he most recently visited always seemed to be the the leader. Um, so I think he was definitely just a kid having a good time at these places. Um, but I would have even liked to see him go to USC, you know, like in terms of just being a casual observer and, and consumer of the sport just somewhere different than just the three or four schools that they keep going to just to spread it out a little bit. And it's like, he may or may not work out at Georgia. And I saw a bunch of, you know, Nebraska fans saying, well, maybe when he transfers or if he transfers, we'll get him on the back, you know, and that's possible, but like, that's not even the solution to the problem of how do we retrain the brains of every top hundred player in high school football from only considering and, and truly, uh, you know, wanting to go to those five or six schools that do it every single year over and over again. And that, that to me uh, is why the sport is so lopsided. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, So he started off in Texas going to high school, your current state. He went to then Arizona, your former state. Yeah. If if you're that, he was almost going to go to Ohio, which was my, one of my States too. It's just like, he's following me around. It's bizarre. So what's is that is that NIL related with with the 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 rules in the state of Texas like with the whole like Quinn Ewers leaving early to go to Ohio to go to Ohio State thing like is there is there anything there like if you're that good why do you have to go to three different high schools? Well, I don't I don't know off the top of my head like when 
the moves occurred in in correlation to the rules. Uh, uh, and I don't, like, I, I honestly don't know why he moved there. There might be another reason um, family wise that he did that. Um, so unfortunately I can't give you a th- an authoritative answer on that, but you know, the thing about these, these guys in this position is that they're going to be rich very, very soon, if yeah. not already. And his dad was a longtime NFL player. Like it doesn't strike me as the type of situation where you'd want to move away from a, a situation that you're content with to go chase a kombucha tea ad, uh, you know, when you're in high school. Um, you know, I do know that the high school that he goes to, my brother graduated from, and um, it's uh, it's been one of the better programs in, in the Phoenix area. And, you know, I think Brian Lewerke went there too, and they've had some guys go to D1 from there. Um, but I just think it's like measurables uh, and what he's able to do physically is what has all these coaches falling in love with him. And, you know, his, his time will be here to make that money. And maybe he's already doing it. Um, you know, it's crazy, Connor, because the NIL rules in state to state are all different. So like, I don't even know, I don't have it memorized. Like, is it okay in Arizona, but not in Texas? Yeah. I know it's not here, which is ridiculous, but like, is it legal in, in Arizona? I'm uh, assuming. You know, yeah. I don't even know. So, um, you know, that is another aspect of this whole thing too. And it's just, uh, you know, it's just funny to see, you got to consider those types of things. You talk a lot about talent acquisition, really cool, really cool story that you guys did on the athletic where you help put together basically a, a rundown of, of which schools are best at developing NFL draft talent. And I thought mm-hmm. certain notions that we have kind of confirmed like Texas having the worst rate of turning five-star prospects into NFL guys at Nebraska horrendous with four-star guys, like three, four-star guys, out of the 67 that they've gotten in this time frame, have gone on to become NFL graphics. But I thought it was fascinating to see the three schools with the best hit on three-star recruits being Ohio State, LSU, and Bama. Like, I thought that was a really interesting revelation. What was your biggest takeaway from doing this project? Yeah, my my biggest takeaway was that there are uh, there's virtually no correlation between being a five-star prospect and, where, and getting drafted, depending on where you go to school. Um, I... Uh, and that's what makes what I was just talking about so interesting. Like, yeah. it's like you, you, they, these kids have this notion that they have to go to Alabama or Georgia to get drafted. And it's like, you could go to Cal and get drafted if you're a five-star player, because you have those measurables. Like, that's the thing. The NFL loves that. They literally just drafted a quarterback on the top five of the NFL draft. That was not very good in college, you know, just because of what he's physically able to do. And that's how you become a five-star prospect. But you know, there were a lot of, I mean, that it, it was just like, it took us 40 hours of math to come up with all of that stuff of like manpower. Um, and uh, there were so many revelations in terms of um, just what that information holds. And I think that every single team, when we released the complete data, um, learned something about themselves. It's like, yeah, Texas did a terrible job developing. Oh, no crap. That's why they've never been good, despite the fact that they've, you know, sign such great classes, you know, and three star U is Ohio state. So you're telling me that the, the school that, uh, you know, gets mostly five and four star prospects is also bet the best at developing their three stars. But then on the other hand, they're getting the better three star prospects than other, other programs. So, you know, it is, uh, if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to go do that because it's a expansive read. And it was like a 5,000 word story of, of you know tidbits like AM was five star was one of the five star use Oklahoma and Texas uh you know needed to improve Stanford was one of the better programs in 
converting five-star prospects. I thought that was interesting. Um, Urban Meyer and Jimbo Fisher were the only two coaches that helped, you know, high representations of development at two different schools. Um, just like all sorts of different tidbits that you can learn about, you know, who is most likely to get drafted from those uh, from those positions. I wanted to float a theory past you because I am a believer in in stars matter and just the basic premise of of talent acquisition and what that looks like because you know and by the way if you have that trademarked I'll Venmo you later uh, I look I, I think <laughs> that if if you're one of these people without top ten talent and you're telling me that why your team's going to win a national title I'm like just, just kind of get out of here I don't really want to hear that conversation so I understand that but is recruiting at the high school level perhaps like maybe not worth getting excited about like it once was like, I feel like there are so many blue chip mm-hmm. recruits who spend a year on campus and then boom, like they're gone after that freshman year. So maybe my, like what, what fans should start doing. You're allowed to freak out about guys once they start making plays as a sophomore, what are kind of your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a, an interesting discussion because I think if you were to sit down and ask any power five coach, like what they would prefer. Um, I think they all would prefer to be a high school recruiting juggernaut, right? I, I don't think that anybody's ever going to win a national championship by solely relying on the portal because A, you never know who's going to be there, and B, you don't know if you're going to get them. But I do think um, we will find that there are going to be a lot of programs that go from good to great or are much better than they would have as a result of it. Um I just don't know if that can be the main factor, but like, yeah, now when you, when you start thinking about, um, you know, what like the the recruiting rankings are different now because signing the classes and feeling the impact of those players, which used to be the same thing is now not based on the point that you just made, right? Like you can get a bunch of really good players to come in, you know, develop for a year, sit on the bench, don't play and then leave. And that like, they never really touched your program. Um, the way that the recruiting rankings would indicate. So like that to me, Connor is the hardest part about, you know, my job and, and kind of understanding and figuring out like uh, how to analyze this stuff is um, there are so many different ways that these rosters are coming together now. And how do you re-rank transfers when they go out? Uh, how do you um, account for how much a person can impact the team if they're not playing um, all the things that you should just be add up how many, blue chip players are on a roster and whoever has the most is going to be the best. And that's still kind of how it goes because, you know, Ohio state, Alabama and Georgia are competing for national championships every year because they have those players. Uh, but now that people are leaving and go, like Florida state, are they going to go win the ACC this year? Because they just got a bunch of really good transfers and have a lot of talent returning from last year. Like that, that'll be interesting. Like I'll be curious to see if a team that relies on transfers or, you know, a large portion of their plan of is getting transfers can actually win a college football playoff game. Now, even TCU. that's changing because that's right. And TCU, um, you know, I guess that's true, you know, but I, I think that when I say win a playoff game, I mean like beat a team like Georgia, you know, like they, they had a better, uh, you know, path to that game than most te- teams get, um, you know, in that four team era, but that's changing too, because everybody's going to make the playoff now. And, there's going to be a lot of winnable games in the earlier rounds. And then the final four will be against Alabama, Georgia, Ohio state, and those teams. Um, so I, I'm like, I'm locked in on Florida state this year though. I'm excited to see how good they are. Last one for you. Cause I know you got to run Yeah, uh, new NCAA video game. It's going to have mm-hmm. players likeness. You can opt in huge news that we got earlier this week. 
going to be wild kind of updating those rosters during portal season. That's going to be really difficult to kind of figure out who's going to be the most fun team to be if we're talking about 2023 rosters, because I think it's boring to be the teams that you talked about that just accumulate all the talent, the Georgia, Bama, Ohio State, even USC with Caleb Williams, a little bit unfair. I was kind of thinking like Arkansas and Colorado would be like two really fun teams to be. Yeah, Colorado would be. Yeah. See, I mean, Dion. I feel like when you think about the game, you have to think about it like um, who has a fast quarterback, right? Yes. So I because like everybody likes to run with their quarterbacks or run the zone reads and stuff. Um, yeah, I think that Arkansas is a really good one like with KJ Jefferson back. And, you know, I wonder like what he would be because he's like bigger and stronger. And I don't know if he's really all that fast, but still could be a menace as a runner. Um, that's a really good question. You I'm going to, I'll steal that from you and I'll write that. Like which, <laughs> and then or, you, you do it. Uh, which, which team would be the most fun? Um, Cause like Dion would be running out to Ralphie with the cowboy hat and Ralphie just chasing him before every game that alone would make it yeah. worth it. I opinion. just, I, I'm excited for the fight songs and the stadiums and all that stuff. I got to tell you, I can't wait till that game comes out. I'm going to become a video game nerd again. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Looking forward to it. Um, Ari, really, really appreciate the time, man. We'll, uh, I'm sure we'll catch up really, really soon. Yep. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're going to get. Figuring out, we're doing a little housekeeping at the top here. Um, so as I said earlier, this is the last pod that we are recording until the third week of june but again evergreen pods we have we have them scheduled those are ready to go we've got three of them so it's still going to be the same exact pod schedule you will not notice a difference other than if there is massive breaking news that happens we will not be able to react to that until after the fact we'll probably do some sort of like since you've been gone type thing when i come back like third week of june so we'll get that figured out but oh, we have i would love a since you've been gone segment with like the kelly clarkson or whatever or ever i don't know which one it is kelly but... clarkson let's not confuse the two very okay. different eras different eras of of uh what's what's the nice way to say this different eras of being the voice of a generation there you go so i would love uh since you've been gone but i'm gonna go on record for that i always love since you've been gone when that scene comes on in pitch perfect who doesn't want to sing along with that the entire time? Come on. You know you've seen that movie 10 times. Anybody that's sitting here at home saying, oh, my God, I can't believe you've seen Pitch Perfect 10 times. I've seen that movie probably 50 times. I don't care. I've seen it zero times. You've never seen Pitch Perfect? Never seen Pitch Perfect. Homework. Homework. Honestly, yeah. I, now I got to see it for that scene. Okay. Um. Nobody came here to listen to us talk about Pitch Perfect, but... Like I said, we've got a lot of great stuff coming up. The Fine Bomb interview next week is, I think, one of the best that we've had with him on. A lot of great insight from from Paul, stories that that you will definitely want to hear. And we have just great stuff that, that we already recorded that's going to be ready to go. So don't like be like, oh, you're not going to see any content from us in the next few weeks. That's not the case. But along those lines, very topical, paternity slash maternity leave. I'm getting two weeks officially of paternity leave, but not taking a vacation this year because just things going on, having a kid. And so basically like what I'm doing is I'm adding week of vacation onto that. So it's more like three weeks for paternity leave 
Lauren is getting three months, which is really, really nice. Both of our employers have been extremely supportive of, of everything. And I'm, I'm very grateful for it. And I feel like there are, there have been a lot of different moments in this process wherein I've, you know, had to like talk to people and like, you know, editors and, and people that rely on me for content and stuff like that, in which I've kind of had to explain, Hey, this is how we're going to be able to do this. Even you and, and our producer, Dan as well. And just kind of going through, this is probably the best way to be able to make this happen, but very grateful that all parties involved have been on board because I realize it's not like that everywhere. And there are a lot of places where the subject of paternity or maternity leave is virtually non-existent. And it has made me very, very grateful to be at a place and at a company that, you know, acknowledges this because I would want that time off. And I'm I'm really looking forward to obviously being able to to be truly present because if I'm sitting here in full work mode throughout this entire time and I like two days later, I've got to go back to work in my same exact capacity. It's like, take the weekend off. I, I don't know how I would handle that. Like Chris Wright, my editor told me when he was at the Miami Herald, he's working Friday night, Friday night, high school football. And for those who don't know, like people know high school football, but high school football on a newspaper desk massive deal especially in south florida where high school football is is huge huge so see he goes in there at 7 30 and his wife's like my water broke and they try to get him to work the rest of the night then they called him in on he he got three days off from from the miami herald and on the second day they called him into work we're living in different times now very grateful for that So I figured it'd be an interesting topic to dig into today because I think a lot of people have a lot of different perspectives on it. And it's not necessarily this catch-all overarching, here's X amount of days that you should take. Here's what this should look like in every given place. I want to just react to that really quick. That is the most like journalism story I've ever heard. I don't know. Do you know about what year this was? Um, I was afraid to ask. Yeah, I, like, I have a I'm, general outline because I know kind of like his his career and, right. and, and how it's played out. Yeah, I I have a general idea, but it's it's a little bit more recent than I'm comfortable sharing. I think it was like 2004, 2004. Oh, that's about when I was gonna guess. Yeah. So point being, like, I mean, that's like the most big J Jarno thing ever. Like, I could just see like the Rafael tweet of like, you know, when you're on paternity leave, you know, your company loses like ten thousand dollars of productivity every single day. It's like. All right, man. <laughs> like, that's just, you know, we got to just get these scores in, man. This is like the paramount thing. And like, you kind of have to gaslight yourself, as we've talked about, whenever you're in news or journalism to like make you think it's the most important thing going on. But, you know, when you have a kid, it's a little bit more important. I'll say it. It is. I, I have, I'll admit this. The timing of this from our end is fantastic. Like, being able to, to go through this in May when it's our slowest time of year. Mm-hmm. There's a reason we do one pot a week during this time of year. And I'm very fortunate that this isn't happening mid-October. If this were happening mid-October, I'd like to tell you that no doubt I would never have any concern. I would take those three weeks and never think twice about it. Anything like that. It would be a lot harder. It'd be a whole lot harder. And there are people I see in this business in this field, and it's been something I've been paying attention to a lot. I'm not here to shame those people, but there are people who just take a weekend off. I'm like, how do you do that? How how do you do that? How can you even get away with that when you obviously have so much work that's going to go into that process in those first few weeks and how pivotal that is? And I'm not trying to say like, oh, these people obviously 
don't want to take care of their kid and enjoy those moments. I just look at it from the standpoint of like, man, even three weeks, I'm like, if I, if I had three months available and you could just tell me fast forward to the start of the season, there's a part of me that'd be like, look, yeah, I'd want to take that. I'd tell people, Hey, just come back, you know, come back in three months and and you'll get, you know, fresh new perspective and we'll still crank out pods and, and all that stuff. But yeah, it is. Uh, I think it's different for everybody. And it's definitely been something that I've been kind of like putting off mentally this time mm-hmm. in which I'm not going to be locked into this like I am so used to, but I'm ready for it. Yeah, I, I would, you know, shudder to think about, you know, once we have sponsorship obligations during the season for the pod, if you were to take two or three weeks off, you'd come back and it would just be me and Emery talking about Bigfoot or something. And you'd just be like, what, what's what's going on? What's, <laughs> what just happened? That's a big part. <laughs> we'll, we'll add a moment to me where I had a moment earlier, like, what was it, like two months ago, I think, when you're like, you're not going to have me just do episodes solo, are you? And I'm like, no, well, come on. I don't even know if I have that much Google Doc space, man. I don't know if I could do this, but <laughs> no. never put you in harm's way like that. No, 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 no. We're, we're good. Nothing to worry about. So yes, yeah, a lot of great content coming down the pipeline. Okay. Saturday on South podcast, Facebook group, paternity slash maternity leave. I said, uh, how long did you take and did you use your entire allowed time? What was your experience like? Is there any situation in which you shouldn't take all of paternity slash maternity leave? And then horror stories, of course, Let's start with this one from Chris Milan. Chris says, my boss at my last job gave me a full month off, more than what my leave allowance was at said job, and I needed every bit of it as it was our first kid and we were still in peak COVID times, December 2020. The first few weeks were definitely rough and had me questioning a lot, but also it was an amazing experience getting to spend that time with my child, and now two and a half years later, she's the best thing to happen to me. If I could end up like that, exactly how that's described that's ideal that's a home run win all around employers on board you're going through that they're like take as much time as you need and you're able to come out of it with with a different perspective you're like i'm I'm so glad i got that time i took advantage of it good on you that is a paternity leave win and i think there's a lot more to be said for how your employer treats paternity leave and what that looks like in today's day and age. And now there's state laws that kind of mandate it. And so it's a little bit different, but man, if you're in a situation like that, count your lucky stars. That's, that's ideal. I'm going to go ahead and just say this really quick. Cause it's all I have to contribute to this really. My boss is just like such a pro. Like he's that guy that always has like the move and his move for paternity league was, you know, he took like two or three weeks off. And honestly, I think it might've been a little bit more than that. Cause I think he took, like you said, like a PCO and paternity leave. And we're like that type of company that gives people lots of time off. And then he worked from home on Wednesdays for like an additional like six months. Dude, that was such a move because we all kind of like internally knew like, let's make sure and get everything out on Tuesday. Cause he's probably going to be like on baby duty on a Wednesday. So like he wasn't having to take time off. It was just like an unspoken thing of like, do we really want to bother Brian while he's working or while he's like at home like with his new baby and like that was such a vet move anybody you can pull that off where you're just like hey i think i'll work from home on wednesdays i don't even know how he got the, the concept of the like whatever to ask that but i will be stealing that move when i have a kid working from home during that is i think a nice advantage it's not an advantage when it comes to daycare mm-hmm. <laughs> let me tell you that it's definitely not what i was hoping it would be in terms of daycare and and the the part-time uh, 
balancing that, but being able to actually have that luxury of, okay, I'm working from home this day. We're going to be splitting duties. This is how this is going to look. I'm going to have some of that that's going to come up for sure. And I'm going to have to figure out how to spend that time, you know, as like an extension of paternity leave. And what exactly does that look like? How do I make sure that I'm not taking time away from, from my company and just basically having them pay me to take care of my kid. Don't want that. I don't think anybody wants that. That's that's a no-win situation. But communication and stuff like this is very important. Ryan Land says, my wife is due May 30th. Oh, very nice. Due May 30th with our first child. I do not get parental leave, but work remotely. I share work with one coworker who already intends to handle most of the work this summer so that I can have the ability to help my wife during the days with our daughter. Not all heroes wear capes. Lad of the week. That's my lad of the week right there. That that coworker mm-hmm. being willing to do that. That is incredible. That it because it does it's there's no guarantee that it's going to be like that. And you might have coworkers where they're just going to guilt trip you the entire time. And they're going to say, Oh, back when I did this, I only took this time off. That is such a win. And that is a true hero. Because if that if that coworker just says like, and you got to give that person a very nice gift for sure, that Christmas gift is going to be significant. But if that coworker just says, "Nah, screw it," you still got to come back. You still got to, you know, I'm not going to take on any of any of your workload. There's nothing really stopping them from doing that, right? Just mm-hmm. human decency is the only thing that's really motivating you to do something like that. I, I don't know that they're getting paid more or anything right. like that. The shopping cart thing, right? It's like, how do I want someone to treat me in this situation? Golden rule, man. Dang, ladder of the week right there. Love that. Just want to say this this lad, Ryan Land, if you look at his Avi, just the cutest little family picture. He has a cute dog in his Avis too. So just welcome to the comment section. You know, stick around. We'd love to hear more from you because it seems like you got got it it kind of figured out. Got a super cute family. Love that. Let's go to another. uh, I, I don't know if we've had a comment from... From this guy. Let's go to this one from Daniel Hodges. Daniel says, so I'm really lucky in this regard. I work for the government. So I got 12 weeks off. Holy cow. I took the first four weeks off and then worked half time for about three months. By that time we were getting baby girl into her daycare program. So it worked out pretty awesome. And that left me with a little bit more leave to use for the very frequent doctor visits over the first year. Overall, it was pretty awesome. And coming up on two years old now, I'm extremely glad I got that much time. And yes, you use the time you're allotted and take some extra PTO if you need to. Those weeks and months are something you will never get back, especially since the phase after that, we call it the potato phase, is pretty boring and a little one starts to develop personality. Best of luck, Connor. Thank you, Daniel. Dang, getting 12 weeks off, man. That's not quite at Spotify levels, six months at Spotify, Mm -hmm. but 12 months is, man, that is, yeah, it's three months. That's really bad math on my part. You probably hit a certain point during that where you have you have more frequent moments in which you say, I know I'm lucky. Mm-hmm. I know I'm lucky. I know this is super convenient. I know there are other people that would look down on me for this. And when I tell someone I'm in the third month of paternity leave, there are certain people that are going to look at you and be like, oh my God, come on. That's not, that's not fair. There's a reason why people come up with these policies, and mm-hmm. if they come up, if they have this policy locked in place, and they're they're saying, "This is the time that we feel you need to be able to get," that's that's not your problem, man. That is not your problem at all. Kudos to you for being willing to to take that and kind of you know work that 
work that into your schedule in a way that doesn't sound like you were necessarily, you know, gaming the system or anything like that. That is, uh, that is, that is a, a very rare, like long, long paternity leave. That sounds like it worked out best for all parties. Yeah. I'm starting to realize that there's like this five or 10 year period of hell that probably was about at this point, you know, five or 10 years ago where like, you know, there's like this slope of capitalism making everyone work. Right. So it used to be that it was more common to have like stay at home, you know, wives or husbands that could just kind of take care of this stuff. So, so that went away. And then kind of like before companies started realizing how hard it was for the employees to raise kids where like paternity leave was a thing, maternity leave was a thing. And I'm looking around our group and it's like so many people had kids during that period of time before society caught up to realizing like, hey, executives that were born in the 40s, like things aren't that way anymore. We don't have like mom at home doing all this stuff. So hats off to you guys that have been able to balance this like without like, you know, a ton of, of paternity leave or maternity leave. And also like hats off as well to the companies and the people that have been able to take that. Cause I know that that's got to take a little bit of pressure off. It still seems very stressful. And, you know, perhaps you guys that have done it, I'm not an adult yet. So I, I feel like I couldn't do that, but at least you're not worried about your employer, you know, being on your back. I think part of it too, in this day and age, there are more professionals who don't necessarily work in the place that they grew up. And right. so part of that and oh, something that we talked about, we have we're we're extremely lucky that Lauren's mom is going to be coming down in the middle of June, and then my mom is going to be coming down like literally the day after she leaves, and then Lauren's sister is going to be coming down in July. So we're going to have three different people who have been through this, very, like very recently. Because even my mom, my mom spent a week and a half in Portland with her boyfriend's grandkids, which twins. So was taking care of like three kids under two in Portland for a week and a half. So I'm, my mom is like going to be more well-versed in this than I am even. So like she's going to be coming down. So like we're grateful to have that help. They're also flying in from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily have that help because this is the choice that we have made to be able mm-hmm. to live here, to, to, to grow our lives and our careers here. And so I think there are a lot of people in that spot where it's not just understood oh, well, the mom, she's not working anyways, and she's going to be at home. And, oh, you probably have help from grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle here. And aunt and uncle. like a lot of people just don't have that. And understanding that and acknowledging that in today's day and age, I think that's an important part of this and why companies have said, let's give you the time that you need instead of dealing with a potential, you know, you're going to break this because you need to, or you're going to find another job and just take this time off because they don't want to have to spend that time and those resources rehiring someone who has up to that point been a competent employee and has never given you any reason to want to part ways with them. That's a really good point about the whole, like it takes a village thing, how more and more people are mobile and getting away from that. Cause that is a pretty good chunk of like, Oh, we can just drop, you know, the baby off with grandma and grandpa or like grandma and grandpa on the other side. It's like, yeah, like, you know, my situation, I'm sure. Sandy would be on, you know, the first plane to Atlanta, but you know, I, that's a lot of people are, are spread out. You're right about that. By the way, Sandy, I was going to get, should I get to this now? Sandy, sure. Sandy is, yeah. Sandy is true. Last of the week sent us, sent us just the most adorable, adorably wrapped as well, which was a huge part of it. Uh gift it, that we got on Friday and Laura and I are looking at each other like, Will's mom got us a gift. She got us uh, a diaper, like the diaper changing pack, and then got us these adorable hangers, which we needed hangers. We like did not, we had, like barely had any hangers. We're like, what, is she, what are we going to hang clothes on? We still needed to be able to get that. And it was like, she knew exactly what we needed. And she, Sandy just coming in for the win. So it was, it was so, so nice of her. Absolutely made our day. It was 
very, very kind for her to to send something like that. And it, it definitely made us like you talk about it takes a village. Like, man, there are a lot of people who have been so extremely kind to us during this process and seen that love. Made me smile. Made me smile. It was really nice. Listen, once you get in the San Diego and San then gift orbit, buddy, hold on. Because you will find <laughs> stuff you never knew that you needed. You'll you'll show up, you'll look outside, and you'll be like, how did I get a, a life-size figurine of Santa for Christmas? This is awesome. And so, yeah, no, I mean, welcome to a Cajun hood, I guess. But uh, yeah, we're just, you know, she's, she's fired up for you, man. Happy to be part of it. Happy to be part of it. Derek Walden says, I took two weeks. The wife took 12. Two weeks was extremely short, but anything after that, I was using PTO and I'm sure she'll want to take a vacation at some point. So I limited it to two weeks. I uh, kind of wish I had taken another week or so. The experience wasn't bad, just not much sleep. I would take the 2.30 a.m. feeding shift so she could get a little sleep. Once I went back to work, I took the 5.30 or 6 a.m. shift and then went to the gym before uh, before work since I was already up we're basically gonna, I I think we're going to probably like copy that model. That's that seems like a really good model. Horror story. She has money taken out of her check for short-term disability. I uh, was talking about I'm guessing Derek's talking about his wife here. Yeah. She was supposed to have 6 weeks maternity leave and then 6 weeks short-term would have been 80% of her paycheck. The disability office has been saying they won't or they don't have all the paperwork to pay her and won't tell her what they don't have. Her doctor has sent in everything they've sent in for everyone else, but disability says they still don't have the right paperwork. So should have been six weeks fully paid, six weeks, 80%. Instead, it's been six weeks paid, six weeks unpaid. Ooh, that is a hit, man. So that's fun. Uh, Now she's back at work. I think this is her third week back and she's having a hard time leaving him. This hasn't been a fun experience at all. Ooh. Going through something like that, you would think, and this is always my reaction. To, to a situation like that. Certainly I'm not the first person who has been on maternity leave before. You guys have some sort of precedent where you've done this. I'm saying if I'm Derek's wife, this, this yeah, would be my yeah, approach yeah. to all this. Yeah, I should have I said that. You've done this before. You can't, you can't just be pointing at me saying I'm the first person who has structured it this way. Where's the breakdown in communication? How do we figure this out? Because having six weeks unpaid while some might push back on that. If the agreement is, Hey, this is what it's supposed to look like six weeks at 80%. This is how we make this happen. Ideally there's precedent and it's, Oh, you know, that's on our end. We messed that up and you go back and you fix it. Clerical error, whatever this stuff happens. And you're able to get that done. Doesn't sound like that is the case at all. And that absolutely sucks trying to get that money back, especially when it's, I mean, 80%, that's like basically your full paycheck. I mean, that's that's a, a big chunk that you are not getting that you, it sounds like should have every right to be able to get. Yeah, I'm realizing more and more that like structurally sometimes um, paperwork is used as a way to get people to not receive benefits. So like we're seeing this now with like the debt ceiling stuff, we've seen it with like the voter rights stuff. It's like, you know, if you put in the more mechanisms you put in place <clears throat> that people have to like do paperwork or show up at this spot at this time, it's going to just like, some people are just going to do it slightly incorrectly or like just miss something slight like that. And uh, it's almost like it's put in place to not pay you. And so it's like, yeah, that stuff is rough when it's like, oh, like, yeah, all you got to do is this, this, and this. And it's like, well, no, like, what do we need? Oh, we won't tell you. It's like, okay, this is actually just to like, it's put here to kind of mess with you. Like, it's not really to help you. So like, I'm I'm seeing that more and more where it's like, well, this should be easy. We could just do this and people could do that and it's no big deal. It's like, yeah, but like, 
70% of people will be able to figure it out. And then the other 30 are just left in limbo. Like our friend True. here. Yeah. Paperwork does scare a lot of people off. It is scary. Mm-hmm. There have been moments where I'm like, wait a minute, do I have to go through paperwork for, for paternity leave or, or figure all that out? I think I've sent our head of HR three different emails to make sure like, okay, I'm, I'm good. Right. Like as long as my managers, everybody that I report to knows like, Hey, this is, this is the process. Of what we're... She's like, Oh yeah, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You're good. You're good. Congratulations. Blah, blah, blah. And she's probably sick of getting the same exact email from me, but I, that's because I feel like I should be going through this extensive process. And I'm like, I actually don't like we have it really set up really well to where it's not necessarily reliance on that. Let's do a couple more here. Scott Bowen says, if you can take it, if you can take it, a newborn is a special time in life. Not to mention, this is a time that can be especially tiring for moms and dads. Parents are leaning so, our parents are learning so much about so much. Parental leave is a blessing. If I were working and not on paternity leave during those first three weeks where everybody talks about sleep, good luck. Probably going to be, I'm going to be honest probably a pretty bad employee, Hmm. probably not really attentive at a lot of different key junctures. So I'm that part of like, part of it is just being able to acknowledge. I think your, your life is going to have such little structure in that first part and what it looks like. And even though it sounds like there's probably going to be like a lot of boring moments, but for me, you're laughing because you know how bad that's going to hit me. And I'm going to have so many moments and that that's, what's giving me such angst right now. I've been just on edge this entire day in part because I'm trying to get a new computer implemented and, you know, figured out with everything that I needed to be able to do. And also because we just don't know, we just don't know. And that is so difficult to sit here and process and knowing all the moving pieces. I don't like that. I, it just makes me uncomfortable. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm Jim. I feel like I'm Jim in the office where he's at mm-hmm. his absolute worst. When, when Pam is hitting, like, she's like, Oh, you're six centimeters dilated. Like all oh, this. Now I thought we said contractions when they hit this level, the five, one, one rule, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And mm-hmm. I feel like I'm that person right now and I fully get it. And I think it's just because I love structure and I, I have no sort of control over this whatsoever. Yeah. I think everyone for their first kid is like that. I mean, my sister, I remember I joke with my nephew all the time that like he was basically a vegan until he was like seven. And what happened was that he had siblings at that point And his mom was just like, well, can't manage this lifestyle anymore. Like he didn't have McDonald's until he was like eight or nine. And now he eats it all the time. And I always like joke with my sister. I was like, was that worth it? Was it really worth it to make us all eat vegan food for like all those years when you just didn't stick with it? And I think that you know, with the first, from what I understand, I'm not a parent, but like, from what I understand, like the first one, you still kind of have that illusion of control. But then once it gets past that, like if you talk to Michael Dark or Jay Woody or these people that just have plenty of kids, they're just so chill by the end of it. Cause they're like, well, all of our expectations, like kind of like so much has like gone off script that by the end of this whole thing, we're all good. So I'm excited for the character development for you, man. I feel like, I feel like <laughs> you're going to get, I'm going to see you in like six months and your Zoom's not going to be working. You should be like, eh. Whatever. It'll be fine. <laughs> I know. And, and today, like, just even the littlest thing, like, littlest program not working can send me spiraling and hopefully, yeah, spend enough time dealing with dealing with a newborn and I'll, I'll, I'll just be rolling with everything and I'll be a different person. Tom Branham says, time off. I took one week of PTO experience. The experience was very humbling. Any situation to not take time off, none that I can think of. 
Uh, and he says, horror story. I got spit up on, peed on, and pooped on in the same day. I won the triple crown. I was about to say, you triple three level score. Good job. Man, those days are coming. They are absolutely coming. I've never changed a diaper in my entire life. Oh, never changed a diaper. Can you like make a TikTok or something, please? I want to see this. I so bad. Just as your friend, I feel like this is going to be lots of good content. Do you post we, stories? They'll go away in 24 hours. Like, we're gonna keep we're, we're gonna keep her face off of off of social media and not just blasting it. No, no, I don't want to see her. I want to see you covered in throw. <laughs> to be clear. You're you're not the only person who'd like to see that, I'm sure. Uh yeah, the uh look, the amount of first that I'm gonna be going through that I'm gonna be so bad at, it is going to test my troubleshooting ability through and through. And I've just told myself, look, Connor. We're gonna eat some crap for a little bit. We're gonna suck at this. It's it's gonna be okay. I keep having to have these internal pep talks about how uh, how bad I'm going to be starting something for the first time, and like even a week later, how much more improved and comfortable I will be with it. It's all about reps, man. It's like I tell people in this business: get those reps, get those reps. It'll take care of itself. So who's your emergency contact? Like, so whenever you have a tech issue, you call me or whatever. Like, are you, is who's the first? Is it your mom? Are you going to call Jay Woody? Like, who's the the number you reach for? You're like, I've never <laughs> seen this like brown throw up. What do I do? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. It probably depends on the situation. Uh, Lauren's parents will probably be on call, ready to go, just because they're experiencing it on a little bit more of an everyday level. My sister-in-law, mm-hmm. um, my my niece, um, they like, they're around her a lot, so they're they're go. getting that experience a, a little bit different way than my mom is. But like my mom would, would definitely be a resource to to call something like this. But who knows, man? Who knows? I have no idea what's coming up. Okay, I already did a lad of the week and a last of the week. Lad of the week, who you got? Lad of the week. Um, so this is like an honorable mention. Did you see the uh the Frank Beamer uh FaceTime video? How did I miss this? No, I oh did not. Oh my gosh, it's super cool. I can't really work in Lad of the Week, it was just a cool video. But um the basically like their whole coaching staff was like calling different players. And it was so funny, like all the coaches were like huddled around the table and they were like FaceTiming their guys to like see where they were. And one of them was Luke Doty, and he was on a beach, and like that was wait. Was... Frank Beamer did this? No, 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 no. Sorry, Shane Beamer. My bad. Oh, I'm sorry. okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm picturing Frank Beamer on a Facetime, like yeah. making all these. Oh, okay, different. Unfortunately, different I have my mom's genes where once I learn someone's name wrong, and it's wrong. So point being, this is Shane Beamer. Sorry. So gotcha. he he is calling all of the South Carolina players, like kind of like you know, it's four p.m. Where are your players at? And like I said, like you know, he hits like all the stars, and they're like am I in trouble? And then they just start laughing because all the coaches are just staring at them. Like it's like 12 coaches around the table. And then, like I said, they get to Luke Doty and he's like, oh, just Jimmy Buffett lifestyle on a beach. And it's just like, all right, dude, you're living the dream. So honorary lad of the week. Um, Official lad of the week uh, is going to be Nikola Jokic, the 44th Joker. overall pick of the NBA draft. That is a second round pick. He is the latest drafted player to ever win an MVP. And he's won two of them. Big uh, knock on him was, uh, can he play defense? And his team has played exceptional defense when it's been necessary. Can he win in the postseason? Well, he's beaten pretty much every great center in the NBA, um, except for Joel Embiid, who cannot win in the postseason. Um, he's beaten, you know, every great center on the way to the finals. And it looks like he's matched up with Bam Adebayo uh, in that finals matchup. They are up three to nothing, which has never been overcome. We've seen, um, you know, LeBron do crazy things in the past. So can't totally count him out, but 
that's kind of why he's lad of the week, right? Is that every piece of media coverage around this series, the Western Conference Finals, has been about the Lakers, about LeBron, about Anthony Davis, about Darvin Ham, about all this stuff. And it's just like, yeah, the Lakers were the seven seed, but every piece of it was, oh, LeBron's been here. How are you going to beat LeBron? Da, da, da. And Jokic is this guy who's just this goofy guy who looked just like me as a kid, and he just kept growing and got better at basketball. And so it's just been really cool to see this guy kind of come out of nowhere. You know, GT was drafted during a Taco Bell commercial. Yes, I've seen that. I did see that many, many times. The Jokic content of how obscure his draft pick was, what his frame mm-hmm. was, is some of my favorite content. I'm not a big NBA guy, as you know, but how can you not root for a guy like that? And when he's, you know, just giving the business to LeBron, I mean, all on board with that every, every single day of the week. You know what's amazing? I don't think he's hit puberty yet. I still don't. Like he's got another gross bird in him. Every time I see him, I'm like, he's not shaving yet. He's still got some of the baby fat a little bit. I know he used to have a lot more of the baby fat, but like, I don't know. Like if if he just grew three inches in the summer and that became a storyline, would anybody be surprised? One of one of my buddies is uh, Puerto Rican and he played for like their national basketball team. And I thought he's a Lakers fan. I texted him about Jokic and he's like, dude, he still doesn't know how to play basketball. He's like, once he learns how to play basketball, because he just is out there, like just living his life. Like it's like his weirdness is why he's so good. And he like jokes about it. it's like, yeah, when he grows up, it's going to be crazy. And so, yeah, that, that that's kind of my overall just wrap it up. You know, lad of the week is uh, don't listen to the noise ever like that's the big thing about Jokic is you know he's born overseas he's been called all kinds of names he's been called soft he's been you know compared to all these guys but in reality he's one of one and so when you're unique when you have it when you're that dude when you're himothy as the kids say just believe in yourself and don't get caught up in that noise because if the story is not about you it'll be about you once you win are the kids saying himothy too much people are asking people are asking unfortunately and jimmy butler doesn't make it better because he is you know himmy yeah no and i think i think himmy needs to like just just go chill. We'll bring it back in like 20 years. I think this playoffs has kind of like every big time shot. He is hit. like I, we, Mark Jones kind of was doing that way too much early on. Like, let's just dial dial back. Once Jokic wins an NBA title, him, if he gets or him, him, whatever, gets laid to rest, whoever, Butler, Jokic, whoever wins the title. And then we just promptly put it somewhere in a vault and then we'll dig it up again sometime soon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, if you have not, leave us a five-star view. Subscribe to this podcast. Follow us on Twitter, at the STFs Pod, at CJ O'Gara, at Go So Hard. Join the Facebook group, your name right on there with figuring out what Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk in a little while. Not soon. Not soon.